to market by market the composition of the demand for services and the provider of services it looks a little bit different and that level of precision and nuance can make or break certain organizations that could be the difference of reallocating your sales team resources right and where you're kind of selling it can change your recruiting practices for bringing on certain provider types it could change your marketing approach to how to educate patients that some of these services exist right there's a lot of downstream implications but it starts from getting down to a more precise understanding of the nuances within that supply and demand which is something that i find leaders are not fully there yet and really asking those types of questions Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Meeting of the Minds. Quick background uh, for Sanjula. Uh, uh, Sanjula, Sanjula Jane, is a healthcare economist who advises C-suite and senior leaders in healthcare on how to best use data and economic insights. She's the chief research officer for Trillion Health. She's a podcaster. She's one of the best data storytellers that I know, and she uses these insights to help leaders like you to challenge the status quo. Her recent report, Trends Shaping the Health Economy, Behavioral Health, combined data from commercial payers, Medicare, Medicare Advantage, and Medicaid for a thorough analysis across around 300 million people of the most recent behavioral health trends as of all the way up to this year. So among many things, the, the, the report covered how increased demand is straining the system and many of the disparities of that impact. Sanjula, I just want to start off a little bit on, on the personal background, because I know you have a, a really storied, uh, a big story in leadership in market development, research, and health economics. Uh, and I want to zoom in a little bit on the uh, healthcare economics piece. When going through this study, what kind of impact are you hoping to have on the, uh, the healthcare industry by releasing this research and, and publishing? Yeah, so Chris, maybe to answer that, let me just zoom out for a second, because I think the kind of agenda that I have for all the research that my team and I put out, including behavioral health, there's kind of a central theme. And that theme is I come from a background of working with, you mentioned it, executives, you know, of health systems and payers and, you know, young companies. And across the years, I've heard a, a central thesis from these leaders where a lot of their decision making perspectives were informed by anecdote, assumptions, their best guess, you know, a concept of best practices, learning from, you know, others, and it's all well-intended, right? And, you know, healthcare is complicated, as we all know, and so there's a lot of change, there's a lot of complexity, and we're all just trying to navigate and grapple with all the different dynamics and headwinds that are coming at us. But the way in which we are synthesizing and trying to contextualize, okay, going forward, how do we prepare for the future, right? If I'm if I'm going to make this investment in a teletherapy, you know, program, right? What is the potential ROI on it, or what do I know about the potential patients who are likely to consume it, right? And we all make you know our best informed you know decisions around you know let's let's assume X percent of the population has this condition, and so therefore they're likely to use it, right? That's kind of been the way in which we kind of operate, and. I always felt that, well, there has to be something more rigorous. 
And so to my health economics background, right, I trained in academia, you know, I still uh, teach part-time over at Hopkins, right? So I appreciate the rigor that a lot of my academic colleagues are putting forward and really studying things at a national level or policy level to really understand what's happening in the environment. The limitation though, in kind of the academic policy world, um, probably two things, right? One is recency. Uh, it's no surprise that healthcare data is really, has a huge lag typically in the industry, right? So when I was in academia, I could be publishing a paper on Medicare policy or telehealth or behavioral health, and I'm still looking at two years old data, right? Then by the time you go through the peer review process, you know, you're looking at really three or four years out by the time you're actually reading it. Then you take into the a factor that most executives who are making these decisions that have the ability to make our healthcare system better, you know, do they read JAMA and others? For sure. But is that their primary reading source day to day? Not exactly. So my mission has been to try to bring some of that rigor and scale to some of those um, academic research principles in a way that is more relevant and kind of actionable for executives. And so the behavioral health report um, really is part of an ongoing series that my team and I kind of put together. And it stemmed from, you know, we could all agree, there's, there's no doubt, there's no question that the United States has a severe, you know, significant behavioral health crisis, right? So the purpose of this report was not necessarily just to re-quantify the magnitude of that, right? There's a lot of survey data, the CDC has numbers out there, so there really was no need for that. But one of the gaps that we observed was, well, okay, we have this crisis, we have finite resources, where is the puck headed, right? What is the magnitude of this issue? What is the rate of change? Are there any changes in behavior at the provider level or patient level that might be indicative of things that might signal where things are going going forward? So the premise of the study really is taking a longitudinal view to track patients or individuals that are getting behavioral health care in this country before the pandemic, so from kind of 2019 through 2022, and to really look along those stages of their journey, what are they doing differently? What has changed, what has grown, what is amplified, and really just give the market and the industry a baseline to really kind of take a step back and say, okay, what do I think this might mean for the future and where do we, where do we go from here? The report is organized into three sections, supply, demand, and yield. And at the end of the day, we're all trying to improve the health of Americans, but we also have finite resources, right? And there's economic considerations we have to factor into how we, you know, juggle these priorities and what we can do. And so the trends really kind of take that, you know, from a demand perspective, what are the diagnoses? What are the conditions? What are the patient preferences for settings of care that's really driving, underlying the demand for behavioral health care service use? But then look at that in tandem with, well, are there supply side trends that are maybe different, right? Or what are we seeing in terms of, you know, behavioral health providers delivering care versus primary care? What's the role of new entrants versus traditional health systems, right? Is there a difference by geography in both supply and demand trends? And then of course, as we all know, the intersection of that is really your yield, right? And so what ultimately influences supply and demand are cost of care and price and a lot of the policies that we're all kind of operating within. And so that framework I'm hoping gives folks a lens to inform your own opinions. So if you are an organization really focused on the supply side of the equation, you're probably gonna really resonate with the supply side. But my caveat is 
it's really important for you to still have familiarity with the things that are happening on the demand side too. Because I think one of the challenges we have in healthcare is we tend to think a little bit in our own silos or focus on our piece of the equation. And this is really meant to hopefully, you know, help you zoom back to say, well, look, this is, these are our challenges and our realities. I have to solve that in the context of what's happening on this side of the equation as well. Great. And, and to help, uh, like, illustrate more around that equation and, and this overall structure that, that, that you're taking. Could you give us an overview of, of some of the key findings uh, uh, across those uh, three uh, buckets that you mentioned? Sure. So I think the first finding, no surprise to anybody here, is that we've seen a shift in setting of care in which Americans are receiving behavioral health care services. And that primary shift that we see is towards virtual care and telehealth. That's probably an obvious finding. That said, the reason I share that is because when you start unpacking that trend further, it's interesting to start looking at, okay, what are some of the downstream implications of that? The related findings, and I and will connect the dots on this in a little bit, is, well, for starters, we're seeing that more Americans are using medication for behavioral health than we've seen previously. We are seeing younger Americans not only present with more diagnoses, right? So individuals under the age of 18 relative to the entire U.S. population have a disproportionate share of eating disorders and depressive disorders. The younger American population is disproportionately affected and that medication trend also applies to them. And then when you kind of look at the um, supply side, well, we see the, the intersection of the high demand that's uh, resonating with the new settings of care and telehealth is that because we have a provider shortage of behavioral health specialists, we've seen primary care really absorb a lot of that demand. And so we see a lot of the tele-behavioral prescribing come from primary care, which we'll come back to. And then on the yield side, the third piece is when you start looking at those longitudinal journeys, what really emerges is that while the incremental cost of delivering certain parts of behavioral health care, right, like so if you use a virtual care therapy session, right, the economics of that are kind of favorable relative to an in, in-person, you know, visit in terms of the cost of care. But when you look at what the patient does next and all the things in terms of their comorbidities and their prescriptions and everything else that they're doing, we see that the total cost of care is actually increasing, right? And so that is something that poses a great concern. So when you put demand, supply, and yield together, what we're seeing is we have growing demand, and that doesn't even account for policy provisions on the table around potentially um, changing screening requirements, right, in this country, which could uh, further identify more individuals with these conditions. Constrained supply, right, and even though the new entrance in telehealth has been a way to scale some of that supply, that supply still can't meet the demand, right, so we, we still have a mismatch there. And economics 101, right, when we have demand exceeding supply, what happens? Price and costs go up, right? And so it sounds really basic and there's a lot of individual findings within all of that, but that is something we really haven't talked about as a nation from a policy perspective, a public health perspective, a care delivery perspective of how do we start curbing? We already have an unsustainable healthcare system, right? From a cost perspective, let alone health burden perspective. 
And so if we are already seeing costs going up, which we can kind of pinpoint to some of these pathways, and we know we have high demand, what do we do to start pairing that back from the health burden and cost burden perspective? Excellent points. I mean, there, there are all kinds of factors that are helping to uh, drive up that demand, make people even more aware of issues they might not have even brought up 10 years ago or uh, been ready to, uh, ready to confront. It does seem like there has been uh, much more of a conversation uh, that is uh, it, that, that's driving that that, uh, that that's assisting driving that demand forward, and of course the mass trauma that we all experienced at the same time uh, with the pandemic and the cluster of events that have happened since then. You know, one of the more disheartening findings, kind of early on, uh, before we actually formalized the study, right, is something connecting the dots between pharmacy trends and medical trends, right? So to that point. Um, we saw during the pandemic that there are more uh, prescriptions for Adderall than there are diagnoses for ADHD, right? So that's kind of interesting. I'm not a clinician. I have to preface that. But you know, just looking at that from a data perspective, I say, well, okay, I can probably explain that from a pandemic perspective, right? You know, we were all forced into our homes. Children were doing, you know, homeschool. They were, you know, we're all working remotely and there were a lot of pressures and changes to how we learn and think and process and focus. So we could probably see why the use of Adderall went up, right? Like you can explain that from a demand perspective. But the question is, what should that new normal be going forward? Is that a clinical concern that we have people taking medications that really haven't been seen or kind of officially diagnosed by a behavioral health specialist, right? What does that mean in terms of protocols that may we may want to consider or may not want to consider as it comes to how we prescribe behavioral health therapies or how do we triage and think about which patients see a behavioral health specialist knowing we have a shortage versus, you know, what are the things that we think primary care providers should be treating, right? So it kind of introduces a whole host of questions. Um, and then I pair that back with, well, if we have a younger generation of individuals um, experiencing these diseases and on these medications, right? And I'm just looking at the, the science, you know, you read all the propensities for developing um, side effects, right? And so if you are um, taking certain stimulants, for example, right, your risk of certain heart conditions and other things go up. So I'm thinking, right, conceptually in my head, okay, so if you now have, for argument's sake, 10-year-olds, more 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds, you know, starting some of these drugs earlier on in their life than historical norms, and you compound those risk factors over time, does that, will that increase their development of additional comorbidities, right? And does that increase the cost and kind of overall health needs that that individual presents 10, 20, 30 years from now? compared to maybe kind of what we're used to seeing today, right? So these are, you know, these are clinical questions, right? But some of these initial findings to me really should, I believe should start um, posing those questions for the industry to really think about what do we want the, the new normal to be? And it starts with what does the ideal pathway look like? Yeah, the, these clinical questions, uh, they give rise to administrative and policy questions. And I, I think that one major aspect of, of your role is not just in the production of these reports, but also in the communication that you're doing across various uh, sectors in healthcare. 
as a, like our audience, the, the the folks that that typically come to meeting of the minds, uh, we have a lot of folks on uh, like the the clinical or behavioral health side, but there's also a lot of people that are serving in population health or as operators or strategists within uh, the the healthcare system or or, or payer domains. Just curious about like you've put out this research, you've put out this this data. What's been What's been some of the tone of the conversations knowing about this increased demand and constrained supply? What are the conversations from the folks that are out here operating and making decisions here? I'm not an expert, but from what the data shows, the reactions I've gotten from the industry is, okay, well, despite being an expert and despite, you know, thinking about behavioral health every day and either building a product for it or thinking about, you know, the payment model for it, I had not really connected some of these dots, right? And in in isolation, you know, the fact that demand is going up makes sense. But then looking at that from the lens of what that means for prescriptions and if certain markets have a higher or lower demand is something I had not thought about in terms of what does that mean in terms of my footprint? You know, where do I need to find behavioral health specialists? Are there certain behavioral health conditions that telehealth is being used more or less for, right? So one of those things that we find is, you know, lower acuity um, conditions are better served with telehealth versus in person. And I share that because there were a couple of investors who said, you know, we've invested in some really powerful, you know, digital health providers, you know, in the behavioral health space. And they're not really seeing the same level of kind of financial success that we would have anticipated, knowing that we have this behavioral health crisis and demand is growing. So for them, it didn't quite add up. But until they started peeling back the layer and said, well, actually, okay, that particular company was really focused on more higher acuity behavioral health conditions, right? And so it was, well, most of the kind of preferred use by patients tends to be for more of your anxiety and depression, not so much some of the more you know serious conditions. And so there is a mismatch that's happening in what the service is relative to what the demand actually is, right? So you know, that's been an interesting perspective from an investor point of view of really thinking more granularly about what the market is for very specific solutions. I think the other reaction has been interesting is on the pharmacy side, actually, right? So looking at some of the prescribing trends, what are the characteristics of the patients, not only the patients using them from an age or demographic or location perspective, um, which is really relevant when we think about some of the headlines that emerged months ago around cerebral and you know prescribing practices and things like that, but also are there any interesting characteristics about the physicians or the providers that, you know, are prescribing certain medications or the ones that use teletherapy more than others. So I would say to directly answer your question, Chris, it's it's really kind of led to a lot of aha moments and have people kind of really just take a step back and say, okay, oh, this might start explaining some of the things that we've been seeing. And most importantly, it's led to a lot of follow-up questions. And so a lot of what my team is doing, um, has been doing in the last couple of weeks really has been um, going deeper into a lot of these trends for specific organizations to really double click, right? So now, you know, we know demand by um, kind of macro condition category, you know, what those uh, numbers look like. Well, you know, is there a difference between, you know, um, this specific code versus that specific code, right? Is there a difference in a certain brand of a medication and, you know, someone who's prescribing more or less of it? So a lot of double clicks are starting to happen. And I think that's really 
helping the market um, have a more informed baseline of you know where the opportunities are where the common challenges are but really like what the size of the opportunity actually really is i think that's recalibrating expectations a bit so great point to bring up um around like how uh, once you produce a report or you produce this assessment uh i think that it's a great sign of success uh, when you start getting those deeper follow-up questions, those, those kinds of double clicks there. A lot of what you had identified is that the type of demand that's increasing, the inventories and the, and the supply that, uh, that was available, there was a mismatch in how to address uh, that specific type of demand. The, the fact still remains that like across the board, right, we just don't have enough supply for that demand. The next layer of that is, okay, if you take a given market, so I'm in the DC area, right? If you were to just look at a market specific level and you look at which conditions and which patient cohorts are driving the most demand for behavioral health services and then also ran a similar analysis to look at you know what are the most common um, provider types delivering that care right and what what percent of that care is virtual versus in person those numbers for the dc market would fundamentally look different than what it looks like in the Atlanta market or the New York market, right? So market by market, the composition of the demand for services and the provider of services looks a little bit different. And that level of precision and nuance can make or break certain organizations, right? Like that could be the difference of reallocating your sales team resources, right? And where you're kind of selling. It can change your recruiting practices for bringing on certain provider types, right? It could change your marketing approach to how to educate patients that some of these services exist, right? There's a lot of downstream implications, but it starts from getting down to a more precise understanding of the nuances within that supply and demand, which is something that I find leaders um, are not fully there yet and really asking those types of questions. Huge point, because if we keep it vague, if we keep it general, if we only look at those national headline numbers and craft our strategies based on that, you might be looking at something that's weighted towards the biggest population areas in the country and not applicable to your particular region. And we, we kind of see that too when we're uh, like doing assessments on conversation flows and patterns across various regions, age groups, demographics. We need to be in an era where we ask the deeper questions on, okay, well, we understand the broad trend, but how, how do we dial into the individual segments and uh, personas within our markets? Yeah, and I think, you know, it goes back to like public health and like pop health things that we've been talking about for over a decade, right? Like we all say healthcare is local, right? We all talk about the communities we serve, but yet we're not really applying that uh, principle to how we're really looking at data to make some of these decisions, right? And so, you know, I started by saying I don't even think we have a good understanding as a country of the national baseline, right? And kind of connecting those dots. So you first kind of have to have an understanding of what's happening there and then peel it back to a regional view and then look at from a benchmark perspective, right? Are you in a market that is on par with other markets or are you, you know, above average or below average, right? Are there certain 
um, things that are common between you know certain markets that maybe could facilitate learnings or identification of certain strategies that work you know better or worse for that specific patient population right we know that how we might manage the behavioral health care of a specific age cohort is going to look very different than another age cohort right but that age cohort could have differences by ethnicity or gender or other things and right there's so many layers to this um, that we can make a lot of assumptions around, and I think that's another mistake we make, right? I hear a lot in the market of, okay, well, for our Medicare population versus our Medicaid population, you know, we'll think about it this way versus our commercial population. We can't think about populations and strategies just from a payer segment perspective because there's so many more layers beyond that. Yeah, yeah, it it really hurts my heart a lot of times when I see the nature of different strategies and approaches uh, based on payer population, income, and things like that. You've done a great job in terms of taking really complex data insights and making them really accessible uh, w w within that guide, uh, uh, within the behavioral health trends guides. Um, I wonder, just in your conversations and uh, your interactions with healthcare leaders, what are some skills that leaders should be thinking about leveling up? Like what to, to be able to understand and, and work in more of a data-driven world, which not all of us have been trained in, not all of us have that background. What are some skills that can help leaders to start making better uh, assessments and decisions uh, from these data-driven approaches? Yeah, I think the, the disconnect, if I can be so bold to use that word, comes from kind of this, uh, misconception of, of buzzwords, right? And so most executives I talk to, and I'm sure Chris, you come across this as well, they all say, of course we're data driven, right? We have so much data and we think about it this way and we do it that way, right? So I think when we say data driven, you know, everyone has data in their organizations, right? And how we use it and how we think about it is one thing. But I think what, what I see as kind of really differentiating the more, um, you know, progressive leaders in the space who are really connecting that to strategy and decisions are those who are actually not taking things at face value, right? So um, let me give you a little bit of a broader example than behavioral health. So around the telehealth times, right? Most CEOs of, of health systems that I would talk to at the time would say, oh yeah, our volumes in our organization are, you know, 300% greater and all of that stuff. So, you know, it's going up and so therefore we're doubling down on it, right? Like they would cite numbers that are either limited to their organization or, um, you know, something they saw in a headline, right? Now, some of those headlines, and I know this is a little bit of a wonky technical way to think about it, but I think it's important, right? Some of those headlines, we're looking at surveys of 100 people. 500 people, right? And we were making, it's like the, you know, back to um, some of the economic principles, like the 80-20 rule, right? We were making decisions that were reflective of 20% of the population and extrapolating it to 80% of the population, right? And so I think that's a lot of the common mistakes we make. And so it starts with leaders actually taking a step back and asking the question, okay, well, you know, where is data from, you know, what, population is it representing, right? Number one. Number two, what are the benchmarks, right? So, you know, back to the health system citing, you know, my organization has, you know, 300% more. Okay, well, you know, is that 300% relative to what? What was the starting point? How does that number compare to other health systems? 
is that number different in your geographic region versus another geographic region, right? Are different patients using driving that number versus you know your competitor down the street using a different number, right? Are we comparing apples to apples numbers? So sometimes I hear, oh, I saw a headline saying that, you know, payer X, you know, Anthem or Elvon, you know, somebody Aetna is doing this and they're seeing these numbers. Well, those numbers could be representative of one condition or one patient population. And then we extrapolate that to a benchmark representing a different set of conditions, right? So it can be highly technical and I don't, but I don't think it means that leaders have to be technical. It just means that before we just blanketly cite headlines and statistics that we see around, and there's a lot of them out there, I recognize that and it's complicated, we should really just ask the question, right? Like, is this data valid, right? And is it, you know, are there, what are the limitations of it? And I just don't, if we ask that even 10% more of the time, I think we would see a radically different conversation and level of thinking um, in how we make decisions. 100% Sanjula, and I, I think a lot of this is about confidence too, uh, because there, there might be some explanation or uh, something that uh, that might not sit well with the leader, but they've been ingrained with this message, oh, I have to be data driven, but not being a data professional, not having that background, they might be afraid to speak up and ask the deeper questions about, well, how is it like, is this applicable to, to our market? Part of the conversation that we, uh, that we were having earlier uh, was around how a DC strategy might not be applicable in Atlanta. So maybe it, it, it's, there, there's a, a step above data-driven where we get back in the driver's seat and be data-informed and understand how to ask the right questions. I think that's very well said. You know, the other thing you got me thinking, uh, you know, I'll share something that just happened over the last month or so. So I've been on the road, as you know, speaking with a lot of different organizations, providers, payers, you know, technology organizations. And I will tell you that there are some instances where I will, you know, run an analysis showing how that organization is performing, right, on X metric, or it could be their market share for behavioral health or things like that. And sometimes a leadership will say, well, that's not what we see. And so we'll go through the specs of, you know, how they calculated their numbers. And I go back to sample, right? Sometimes they're calculating things based off assumptions and not having full visibility, right? So we reconcile the numbers and they'll say, and usually the number I'm showing uh, shows a lower number, right? Like signaling some um, lower performance. And sometimes leaders will say, well, I can't really show that to the team because it's going to change the strategy or what we decided six months ago. And we're going to like press forward. And I hate to say that out loud, but that is very much something I hear um, more than once. And I think that goes back to we're moving fast. There's a lot of responsibilities and tough decisions, you know, that our leadership have to think, take into account. But we also spend a lot of time making these plans. We do strategic planning once a year, and then we're not really tracking a lot of these things and seeing you know, how the assumptions change. Uh, should we adjust in real time, right? Um, I see this, you know, being in DC, I think a lot about policy, right? We saw this during um, the pandemic, right? With telehealth, it's like, oh, we saw this peak go up here. So we're gonna make some, you know, think about it this way, but we haven't really looked at saying, well, you know, and, did it, is that a permanent change? Is that a temporary change, right? What does that mean? You know, what did the level of utilization change when we made this policy provision versus this one? 
instead of waiting two years to go analyze it retroactively, like to be tracking it even at a quarterly level. So I think it's inf being informed. I love that. But I also think it's the willingness to go back to your team and say, hey, maybe this picture doesn't look so great, but what are we going to go do about it? Because the reality is, is it probably isn't a good picture half the time, but that's how we're going to make the change, right? We have to be honest with ourselves of where we actually stand. And I think um, that's, that's step one. Yeah, that's a leadership lesson in general is to not blind yourself uh, to the real world just be, uh, uh, because of uh, past investments. And we could keep going on this topic, but I, I want to maybe pull a little bit of a layer back too, because you know we have the ability to ask these questions and interrogate the data and sources and everything like that. But there's a problem that, that happens when you do something and it confirms something that you already believed and you think that it's answered and you move on, that confirmation bias. How do you avoid the, the temptation of just going down the path of something that already confirms your, your beliefs? I could argue you could find some source to validate almost any viewpoint out there, right? And so it's a matter of go find the counter opinion, right? And go get 20 opinions or go get 20 sources on the same topic. Think about it from a different stakeholder perspective, right? So you might have found a finding or a data point that validates, you know, what you think your direction or your assumption is, but maybe if you take a different lens and thought about it from a competitor point of view or a different stakeholder, you might come to a different answer, right? And, and I always think about, you know, how would, a, how would somebody try to poke holes at this, right? What questions would they ask that I would have to defend, right? So I think it's getting a lot of inputs, whether it's talking to people as well as getting hard data from multiple sources and questioning the methodology and trying to put them together, right? That's a lot of what my team and I spend time doing is we reconcile 20 different studies on the same topic. And we're like, this person came up with this number, this person came up with this number, can we really compare these two numbers, right? Like what are the pros and cons and the sample size and things like that? So I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Well, I hope that people watching uh, can come away with a, with a sense and a confidence to ask more questions and interrogate uh, much deeper. What's your advice to people that are, are working in these teams that, that want to bring more data-informed leadership to the table? You know, it's interesting. Um, a couple of years ago, I remember sitting down with an executive at a large retail, you know, organization that we know very well. And he had said, you know, in every meeting that we had, whether it's an internal team meeting or a weekly leadership meeting, we all start the meeting going around and we have to share, like, we have to use data to give our progress update, right? So, you know, last week sales went up X percent and we saw returns by this. And this is what we know about the customers who did for this return, right? Every single person or functional area had to communicate with data, right? And so that got me thinking, we don't really do that in healthcare in particular, right? And so my advice would be, I think we have to lead by example, right? So back to what I do, I don't have a rec an opinion on how we solve the problem right now. I'm not an expert in operational, how to execute the strategy but I can provide the information to how people think, right? And so I think it's the same mindset of, if you feel confident in the number and the factual base that you're putting forward, pose it back as a question. Say, you know, this is what we're seeing. You know, these are some of the things I think it could mean. These are the things that it could not mean. These are the strengths, these are limitations. 
what do you all think, right? It's, it's kind of framing a lot of the data and the evidence in a way that'll get a conversation going. And it's really just a, it's a thinking exercise, right? And some people might poke holes at it, some might challenge it, but there's gonna be someone who's gonna be like, you know, if they don't say it, it's going to change how they're thinking, whether it's subconsciously or consciously or in that moment or, you know, a week later. So I think, you know, it's easier said than done, but I, I think it's just leading your conversation or supporting your viewpoints with data points where you can and pose the questions back. We have to, just have to understand that organizations, the quality of an organization depends on the quality of the decisions that underpin it. So uh, yeah, you need a quality source for those decisions to happen. We've kind of painted this picture around the, uh, the behavioral health landscape uh, and, and economy overall, and these frameworks, these ideas on how to make decisions based on that. Could you talk about how organizations should monitor their own success? Like, are these decisions actually working? Are we doing well and performing in, in, in the market? I think that the starting point is, what is the objective, right? So who is our customer, right? And I know we all have standard measures that we're used to thinking about, right? The balance sheet, revenues, you know, if you're in the provider business, you're thinking about H caps and readmissions, right? Like we all have, healthcare has a lot of measurement systems and metrics, right? And I would say, put that aside for just a second, put, put away all, all the traditional measures that we're expected to produce, right? Who is our customer and what is our objective that we are trying to achieve as a business? And I think it's being really honest about what that is and then how are we going to hold ourselves accountable to that measure? So if we are trying to, um, you know, reach more patients with behavioral health services, right? If, you know, the starting point is today we deliver, you know, uh, behavioral therapy to, you know, 2000 patients, right? have we grown the number of patients we're seeing, right? And actually like put that as a benchmark. It's like Donabedian, right? Structure, process, outcomes, right? What are the mediating factors that we're developing strategies around to get the outcomes we're trying to do? And then how do we measure if they're actually working, right? So if we're trying to look at um, engagement, right? We want patients to see their provider multiple times to have continuity of care. Has their visit interaction changed from two to five, right? So uh, there's endless number of examples. And I know it sounds really basic, but it's every day I have conversations where sometimes it's like we get down rabbit holes of, you know, multi-billion dollar organizations talking about H caps and this, and they're talking about consumer engagement strategies. And it's like, well, have you even just measured like share of care? Like what percent of all that patient's care are you even seeing? Right, it's like we don't even orient ourselves that way. So I think resetting on a different set of metrics is step one. And then step two is to really think about, okay, now how do we go calculate that metric? And sometimes calculating it means you don't have the answers from all your internal data sources, right? And I think that's also a, a new way of thinking, right? What is the right benchmark, a comparable benchmark to see how we're performing relative to something that's comparable? If I'm in a traditional provider business and I only see my EMR, there could be things happening outside of my EMR that have implications for my patient population. I should probably go figure out what else they're doing to have a fuller picture before I, you know, determine if I if I'm performing well or not on my met, on my metrics. So that really that lies parallel to some of the more recent uh, research that you put out uh, that that looks at these kinds of uh, benchmarks and explorations. 
Well, it's building on the same theme, Chris, of everything we've been talking about, right? So the, the quick thing on hospital benchmarking, back to how we make decisions. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a room with a hospital executive that says, I want to be number one on US News, or I want to know what Mayo is doing. I want to know what Hopkins is doing, right? And it's always like, okay, but why? Like, you know, if you're a hospital in Dallas and you have a very different population, like what can you emulate from, you know, the Mayo Clinic, right? Which has a very different patient population, geography, set of services, and endless number of other factors, right? And it was kind of this apples to apples comparison. So, you know, in short, we've really developed a, um, an algorithmic approach to basically take any number of comparison metrics, a lot of the same metrics that we're used to um, in things like US News and LeapFrog from a quality perspective, things that every hospital is already reporting, but it's taking the subjectivity out of it and showing you who should I actually be comparing myself to, what are the right benchmarks, and then what does performance look like? So that's kind of one big thing about it, and it's called the Similarity Index Hospitals, right? So it shows you your similarity and then you index against a set of measures. The second piece back to the measurement is actually a really great segue you made, is um, you know, we're, we've been primed to think about quality in a very defined way, right? And that has an important role in how we all operate. But if you actually look at the spread of quality metrics for a set of hospitals, it's really, really, it's not very long, right? Like to go from a 94 to a 94.5, like they're are really small differences in some of these, a lot of these measures. I'm not saying it's not important to focus on that, but back to strategy, we're investing a lot of money into a lot of other things. And ultimately our revenue comes from things like market share and how competitive are we and what services are we offering, right? It's, it's more than just quality, right? We're, we're accountable for, a variety of measures relevant to our business. And so the index also accounts for measures beyond quality to help hospital leaders really think differently about what, what do we need to succeed going forward and what are a range of benchmarks. You could be really great in quality compared to some of your peers, but not be as great from a financial performance perspective. And you kind of need both, right? You need multiple things to be successful. So it kind of builds on a lot of what we just talked about today where it's it's challenging the way that we've done things for so many years and sometimes we don't even know why and taking a step back to say what's the goal what's the objective hospitals i mean there's no secret the u.s healthcare system is terrible right we have to improve it and clearly year after year we put out these ratings and rankings and we pat ourselves on the back to say you know i got this award did it actually make a difference? We're sitting here talking about how to improve the healthcare system, right? So let's let's flip it on its head and let's try some new things and make it more data-driven to really get folks to challenge their assumptions and get out of their old, you know, anecdotal ways and you know, see if that will help give a more tangible way to track are you improving and where should you focus your efforts? And speaking of uh, flipping it on uh, on its head, that really get that, that kind of plays into a question we just got from the audience, which was just around in these conversations with leaders and executives, was there anything that gave like a, a hint of optimism at like how people are making decisions or any kinds of changes people are making based on this data? 
Oh, um, they call me the like gloom and doom lady for a reason because I feel like right now a lot of my, my data is saying um, some not so great things. I wish it was a different story. I, I think it's still early. I do think there are a handful of leaders who are are thinking differently about some of their investments and are maybe kind of paring back a little bit. Not to say that they're not prioritizing behavioral health, but they're maybe investing differently. So let me give you an example. I think there are a handful of companies who are focused on the supply side of behavioral health, right? And they're realizing, well, we actually have the same issue that traditional providers have. There's just a shortage of psychiatrists. Whether you're a telehealth company or a health system, it's the same resource we're after. Like one can't produce more of that resource than the other necessarily. And so maybe thinking differently about the business, okay, if we're limited in our growth for this period of time by X number of psychiatrists, are there other things we could be thinking about to encourage more people to train, right? I'm not saying that folks are doing this necessarily yet, but I think a handful of leaders have started to think, okay, maybe we can't solve this right now. We should, you know, focus efforts a little bit differently and, you know, shift gears to A, B, and C, or, you know, how do we get more involved in the education front and things like that. So I think it's still early. I think, I think this is a, a huge issue. I think it's a huge challenge and there's no easy solution. And so I think it's going to take a little bit more peeling back the onions to really think about, you know, what does this mean to do differently? And ultimately it's gonna to have to require people coming together, right? The policymakers and individual, you know, digital health providers and investors, and, right? Everybody has to kind of come together to think about what which piece of this continuum they're really gonna go tackle. Folks who spout doom and gloom, I'm gonna say it, can sometimes be underappreciated. <laughs> uh, so I, if, if someone thinks that everything is fine, then they're going to be less inclined to do any kind of action. For you, uh, the, the the queen of doom and gloom, as you said, I'm going to give you a magic wand. We ask this question for everybody. Uh, you get a magic wand that allows you to, cheer, uh, to change a single aspect of the uh, United States healthcare system. So what would that change be? I think that someone... Uh mentor of mine had mentioned this, that, you know, the system is working the way that it was designed, right, which is an interesting thing to think about. And a lot of that comes from the policy structures and the incentive structures we have in place. And we'd have to spend three hours unpacking that alone, Chris, right, whether it's things that we have around MLR provisions and what that means for what insurance companies can do or how we determine RBUs and billing or even some of the value-based payment models and how those are designed or age cap metrics or how we de develop employer you know, health benefit networks, right? There's endless number of examples of the policy incentives and the payment structures have manifested in a way that they were really intended to, to work in, in pieces. And so if I had a magic wand, I would almost take it all away and start from scratch, right? I think we almost have to have to create a whole new set of, of measurement standards, right? And I think that we would shift our thinking from, instead of thinking about value-based care, we think about value for money and we think about quality relative to price. And we, we would just change our orientation on a lot of things. I remember in my PhD training, I had a professor who was, involved in the early years of coming up with the methodology um, for RBUs and some of the payment models for different specialties with one of the committees. And he had said that there were points in the conversation where you'd have you know, physicians and specialty groups around the table and they would say, oh, 
I expend, you know, I use more of my brain or went through more schooling to be a neurologist or a cardiologist versus primary care. So my rate should be higher. That this is anecdote. I heard this from a secondhand story, right? But that kind of stuck with me of how do we make that decision? What maybe worked back in the day? Does that really still hold true today? Now we have a primary care and behavioral health crisis. You know, what does that mean for the payment model and how we incentivize individuals to go into these professions, right? So we could spend hours on it, but I think it really would be starting fresh on some of the reimbursement and financing structures that we have today. Beautiful answer. Uh, I mean, it it really goes all the way down to the heart of the matter. I hate to uh, to close out this conversation because it's been so real. Um, for folks that want more of this for like this hour was not enough. Uh, what is the best way that people can, uh, reach out, get in touch with you? Sure. Um, folks can certainly reach me on LinkedIn or Twitter, just Angela Jane, um, or shoot me a note at sangela.janeatrillionhealth.com. But, um, would love to hear any questions or thoughts you have. I'm, I'm here to help. And ultimately I'm just an academic trying to publish as much as I can to get folks the information that I think would benefit um, our U.S. healthcare system. Well, appreciate the the rigor that you're bringing to the table. Appreciate you uh, asking people to put on their, their doubt hats until things get to a sufficient level of review. So very much appreciate that that aspect of the conversation. And I hope that's that's resonated with the audience. Until we see you next time, thank you.